This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're going to start a really interesting evening of conversations, and I am lucky uh, to be with all of you in the next one. I, so you're going to all be sick of me by the time we're done with this, but I'm going to interview yet ag- again another headline interview, another fascinating person who has contributed significantly uh, to our understanding of the uh, ecosystem surrounding uh, cancer research and uh, clinical trials and, and, and really the, which has become such a national problem. It's been so impressive to hear everyone today, but uh, we're going to have a very dour person uh, next. So please welcome to the stage Clifton Leaf, uh, an editor of Fortune <clears throat> magazine and uh, author of this book, The Truth in Small Doses, Why We're Losing the War on Cancer and How to Win It. Uh, We had a lunch today, um, really hosted by Lily, and in this, someone at the table was brave enough to say to Clifton that he was one of the most unliked people in the uh, (laughs) cancer business. Uh, and, and he was very. He said it very politely. He did. Uh, it he was, did. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness I was between the two of you. Um, nice. you're, you seem to be a pretty good guy, pretty nice guy. I've enjoyed our, our time together. But you've issued a really strong indictment against the cancer research industry, yeah. the doctors, the ecosystem, the funders, the government, the whole thing. And so I'd love to just you know give us an on ramp into why you think we're failing so badly. Well. You start with a story where there are no villains. And I I make that clear in the book, and I hope I make that very, very clear in in the talks that that I've given. You know, it's hard to imagine, you know, a failure this grand, in my view, anyway, where there are no villains, where everybody comes into it uh, with the right aims, with the right expertise, with the right uh, dreams when they go to bed at night. But during the day, when they go to work, Virtually all of the incentives for their day-to-day jobs are misaligned with the goals. So if the, in, if the goal is to collaborate, the day-to-day incentives for most researchers is to not collaborate. And this is done through the grants operations, through uh, the publications rights, the academic promotion system. Uh, if the aim is to, um, to share data, to, uh, to create an, an open data system, uh, the, the day-to-day incentives are really about hoarding data and keeping things very, very secret and about patent, patenting aggressively. And so uh, if, the, if, the, if the aim at the clinical research side is to uh, intervene in the cancer research process early, in the, in the cancer uh, development process early, the, the day-to-day incentives make that almost impossible. And so what we have is really a cultural failure. You know, we're great people who want to do all the right things are stuck in a system that doesn't work. Do you think that the, um, particularly, I mean, the, the amount of money that goes into uh, cancer research is just stunningly large. It's a, a huge amount of money. Not, so, I mean, I, I guess people could raise the case that there are still resource issues, but when you compare it across the board to lots of other things, there are lots. Is, is the need to say there is progress afoot, even though when there's not progress afoot, uh, a function of the money part of this, the psychological part of this? Well, I, I think it's more the, it's first the psychological part and then second the business model. I mean, I think you, you can't ask, keep asking people for money, especially from donors and marchers. And, you know, I served for three years on the, Komen, on the board of the Komen Foundation. I know what it is to wear a pink ribbon in March. Um, and so I, 
I think did that there is this Coleman? sense. I'm sorry? Did you quit Coleman or did they quit you? No, I had a three-year term and it ended long before any of this other craziness started, uh, I'm happy to say. So I was off the board. But um, in that time, I understood what it was like to keep an organization, the, the, the responsibility as a board member to keep an organization like that functioning. Mm. And, and part of that, the organization existed for the organization's sake because that's part of what the larger mission was mm-hmm. uh, of bringing the message about you know, uh, cancer awareness and prevention to as many people as they could. So they had to keep that organization uh, sustained. But you need to kind of communicate gains. But there's a great inflation. So the natural tendency is that everything that comes out of, of a discovery, out of a bench discovery, becomes you know, an advance. And then advances become breakthroughs. And breakthroughs lead to this process where, hey, we're making progress. We just need more money. We're just this close. Um, Please, the only thing keeping us back is money. And what I would say is that, yeah, it would be great to have more money for a lot of people. It would make a lot of lives easier. But to change the system, money alone won't won't fix what we need. So we do need maybe more money, um, but we, we have to fix some of the sort of cultural barriers, the systemic barriers, in order to put that money to good use. Now, you had Hodg- Hodgkin's as a young man, young boy, um, and you were diagnosed with Hodgkin's. And, and it is in this realm of Hodgkin's where you've had uh, one of the greatest leaps if you will, and you might tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Do you find something structurally different in um, what is the the, the drug is? Um, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Gleevec. Gleevec. Yeah. yeah. So Gleevec. Uh, how, how has the the system that produced that? been different than what you've seen in other cancer therapies? Well, that's a really good question because I think when you go back and you look at the history of, you know, if you look at what the rhetoric now is, is that we've entered into a, a molecular revolution in which the, the, the drugs that are being designed are being designed to target specific, I can't even say specific, that's, that's how hard it is. Specific, Did well that second time. And then I, and I even got to molecular aberrations yet, so imagine how hard that is. Specific molecular aberrations and which the understanding of the cancer process is what's driving the drug development. And so this is supposedly our revolutionary you know, threshold. But if you go back to the early days of, of cancer drug development, there w- that was also quite rational. In fact, the, the scientists talked about it in the same way of we're entering a new rational era in which they were targeting the cell cycle. Um, in different ways and in different processes uh, with very targeted drugs. Now, the difference was that those drugs also attacked other cells that were dividing rapidly, and so there were more side effects, and so it was more of a bludgeon effect. But the thinking behind it was quite rational. And virtually everything you can think of, from the very first folate antagonist, methotrexate, which was interfered with B vitamin synthesis, uh, to drugs that interfered with the, what are called the mitotic spindle, you know, uh, where the chromosomes separate from, were all very rationally developed. And so I think it's more of a continuum uh, rather than a true departure in terms of the science. You know, the um, Siddhartha Mukherjee and you were profiled together in a great article that I wish I could distribute to all of you, but it was in the July 1st, 2013 of The New Yorker. And yes, we at The Atlantic do read The New Yorker. Um, and it's called World War Cancer. It's a terrific article that basically... Looks, and we had Siddhartha with us this morning, and, and he's largely perceived, and you've accused him of being slightly too optimistic about 
the revolutions going on, the, uh, uh, the kinds of scientific moment we're at where there possibly could be a lot of other break breakthroughs because you're indicting the structure. Do you think the critique of you is the sort of, uh, I mean, there is this subpart of how to win it, which we haven't gotten to uh, <laughs> on your book, but, but a lot of your book is why we're not winning it. Yeah. And, and a lot of his book is a narrative of the stories, the history uh, of, this, of this, you know, horrible um, disease, well, I don't know if it's a disease, but horrible um, um, ailment, and, and that he sees the prospect of things getting better, and you uh, think they're not. So what do you think you need to fix to get in his spot? Well, first of all, I, I think he, that his, he's brilliant, and the book is brilliant, and, and you know, he's done a remarkable service, I think, to the, to the uh, broader, uh, uh, to broader humanity for bringing this conversation to bear. Um, and I don't think he's too optimistic or too pessimistic. I think his, his mission was to describe, to do a, a biography of cancer and, and to really bring it and to put it in its historical perspective and, and to uh, help elucidate um, the fact that we have been struggling with this issue for a long time. In, in my view, I really focused on the culture of cancer research, on, on, on a sort of a, on what's holding back very bright um, very committed people from doing what they want to do. So we've talked a little bit about grants over the, of the past, and you can't really do anything without getting funding. Uh, and the, the mother's milk of modern science is the R01 grant, this, mm -hmm. this basic. It's a research project grant. And this is really what drives academic science, this R01. And the, it's very, very difficult to get. But most academic scientists will spend more than 50% of their time going through the process of gathering preliminary data and filling out the forms and serving on the right committees, and less than half of their time really focusing on the science. Um, the, the rates, the success rates have become smaller and smaller. Now, part of that is a function of, of flat funding for budgets, but part of that is where that money has been going. And so uh, what I hope to see is that young scientists, in, in particular young investigators, mid-career investigators um, as well, can have more freedom to actually do the re research that they want to do. Uh, this morning to say that, that uh, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee was... Um relatively apathetic about my mentioning Richard Nixon, you know, which I you know, need to do as, uh, uh, in every event, as I mentioned uh, this morning. Yeah. Um, you were one of the few people in the room that said that's right, that Nixon yeah. actually did grab a moment, that the war on cancer at the beginning was important. But then you told me later today that the wrong bill passed. Right. And I think maybe can you give us a little insight into what you mean by that? Sure. Well, you know, I think it's important to give credit uh, to Nixon. I, I think part of this was to, for the one chance he had to beat Ted Kennedy, to beat any Kennedy. So, so he sees that national moment to say we're going to pass this, this very uh, uh, paradigm-shifting war on cancer. Now, there had been an earlier war on cancer declared in the 1930s when we first built the National Cancer Institute. Um, which also started in part from uh, a piece in Fortune magazine, which I give credit to my, my, my employer. But, um, so, but in, 19, in the 1970s, in, in the late 60s, um, there was this movement to sort of attack cancer with these, this great barrage of resources akin to what we had done with the moonshot, uh, to, to send a man to the moon and return him safely. 
And many people in the medical community thought this was naive, that we didn't know enough about the cancer process to do this. We didn't know enough about the science to make this happen. And they were very skeptical of this. And what happened was Kennedy had uh, proposed a bill um, that based on a, a panel of consultants that said, listen, we've got to remove the cancer enterprise uh, from the NIH, from the broader NIH, and rethink how we do this. And part of those elements will be building collaboration, building an accountability, using more contracts rather than outright grants, um, making sure that we had an engineering approach to a broader problem. A competing bill um, mm. by a guy that was sponsored uh, in the House... These were all Democrats, by the Who way. Who is the guy? Rogers uh, of Florida. Um, and he, uh, he really, he was one of the few to actually oppose the, the Kennedy-Johnson ticket, uh, interestingly. A, a fellow Democrat, but a very conservative uh, Southern Democrat. Um, and he basically scuttled the bill that was passed 79 to 1 in, that, in the Senate. Hmm. Um, and, and substituted a separate bill with the same number, the same congressional number. But that bill had all the money, and, uh, but just none of the change. So it had all of the money, giving more money to cancer than, cancer than it had ever had in its life. And yet, um, it was basically just still in the NIH. And that bill passed, and the, the person who had been charged with sort of leading this fight, Benno Schmidt, um, who was the f- sort of first venture capitalist. And he, he just knew in his heart that this was the wrong, wrong bill. Yeah. Is Julie Fleischman here? I don't know if she's moved on. Julie, uh, Julie was at our lunch today, and she's the head, uh, some of you would know this better, but of essentially the National uh, Pancre- uh, uh, Pancreatic Cancer Association, right. um, or something fairly close to that. And we had an interesting conversation after the lunch where uh, she made the point that the that while the survival rate uh, from pancreatic cancer is, is about 6%, it's, it's very small. And he said 10 years ago, virtually no one was studying this, that it was just sort of a dead end. Uh, now there is a field. There are people that are devoting themselves. There are some potential prospects moving on. But, it, but I, as, as I mentioned at lunch, I raised the question about essentially, I don't know what they call them, silos, but part of the cancer community being compelled to organize, to find celebrities, to get postage stamps to support their cause, to, to, to do these things to sort of raise the profile of their particular piece of the cancer puzzle. And I've always felt been uncomfortable um, with that approach to things that are obviously such an important, common, and public good. And I wonder, to some degree, what is lost in that approach. Um, I remember... You know, and I admitted it today, and I feel kind of awkward about it, that in the 1990s when Dianne Feinstein approached my boss, Senator Bingaman, about signing up to support a breast cancer postage stamp so that you would pay a little bit more for the postage stamp and the, the, benefit, the, the, the uh, surplus of that would go to this. And I told Jeff at the time, I said, what a crappy way to fund such an important uh, arena. And, and you, in a way, kind of minimize and trivialize it. And what about all the other cancers out there do you create something sort of a rush like this? And I'd be interested to get your, I mean, you've, you're into this far more than, than any others that I know. You've looked at a lot of the different kind of competing, uh, uh, well, competing, but stand-aside cancer elements. Is there a better way? Are we, are we missing something in terms of the way clinical trials are done? Are we missing something in the, the, the broad structure, the public good in each of these by the way we force, whether it's... Uh, you know, various lymphomas or something, skin cancers, they have to go out and essentially find 
their own method of fundraising on the, on the outside. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that you know we tend to think of silos in the academic community and the research community. Um, we don't think of it as much in the advocacy community. And as an advocate, and as someone who did serve, on, you know, working with a charity, you know, you see this quite a bit. Um, it's not only a, a division of your, where your primary cancer is, you know, you're a breast cancer person or somebody else is a multiple myeloma or colon cancer. Um, but even within those spaces, the, the charities often compete with each other. So in breast cancer, there's a well-known um, sort of division between various advocacy groups and how they see the fight, audit, how it should be fought. And, um, and they do compete fiercely for, for funding, um, for donors, um, so that they can fund Is there a better people. way? Well, I mean, here's, this is the challenge, is that people have the right to go and support the, the causes that they believe in, and I think it does get out a lot of, um, you know, get the message out there, you know, that, that more is needed, um, and the more attention is needed. And so, you know, trying to bring in these various constituencies into a sort of a more, uh, you know, gestalt way would be terrific. And there have been efforts to this. There was the sort of Million Cancer March uh, uh, where a number of years ago where a lot of different cancer organizations got together and worked on this. But I think one of the things that you're, you're hitting on is that is what we had not seen with, with the AIDS community, which was much smaller and more... more uh, more homogenous in, in a sense of the message and more fierce. Mm-hmm. Um, cancer is so big and so, I mean, so giant. 1.7 million Americans are newly diagnosed a year, and yet it, it's almost so apparent that it's, it's too obvious, you know? So we don't think of it as, as an urgent uh, need. So, if so for the like, audience's sake, we, we had yeah. a discussion about how those afflicted with HIV AIDS and frustrated with the clinical trials process essentially uh, stormed the barricade and compelled a very different uh, set of behaviors and, right. and, and, and treatments um, and, uh, yeah. and approaches on this. And, yeah, Lori Garrett, um, yeah. author of Betrayal of Trust and many other books and a brilliant journalist, she had brought up this issue that there was something unique about the AIDS uh, the community um, in terms of demanding change from the way the regulatory process has and the way drug developers work together and had created new mechanisms for getting drugs out faster. And I remember, and I told Lori afterwards, uh, you know, when I went down to the, to, uh, to the FDA and, you know, you go to this building in Rockville and, you know, nobody goes to Rockville. I mean, that actually sounds like a, an indie rock song, doesn't it? <laughs> nobody goes to Rockville. Um, and, you know, and I asked, you know, I was meeting with the FDA director and the assistant director and the deputy director and the deputy deputy director. And then before I got there, I asked the, uh, the doorman, the security guy, I said, when was the last time anybody showed up here to pick it? He said, you know, the AIDS crisis. You know, because there's this sense that as overwhelming as this is, it's not a crisis. Now, the Institute of Medicine just had a fantastic report just a couple of weeks ago. And, and what they said is, we're in a crisis. We're in a crisis of cancer care. Um, you know, this isn't some radical muckraker journalist saying this. This is the Institute of Medicine. And one of the things they talked about was the demographic time bomb of aging America um, getting into the sort of hot zone, if you will, of cancer incidents, you know, needing cancer care and not being able, and not having the resources to take care of people. So I believe we are in a crisis uh, and we have to address that. Yeah. You know, the other thing we talked about this morning um, and that you touch on your book is that this notion of 
the system needing to, to take risks, the system needing to, and, and Mukherjee was talking about risky predictions that, that help drive it out. And, and again, in our earlier discussion today, um, I think many people in the room thought that the industry itself, that doctors research, tends to be fairly risk averse. Yeah. What is, why, why is, I mean, I don't get that. Like, right. why is that? <laughs> aren't, there, aren't there, like, billions to be made by somebody that, you know, uh, uh, finds the cure to cancer and, 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 and so what is wrong in the market place of how this operates because that's where you want yeah. uh, you know in looking at your book today that's where you want things to go as well so it's not reckless it's sort of smart risk but why do you think the system is inhibiting those sorts of jumps and, and how would you structurally change it so that it's responsible risk taking well to take the first issue first um, the, there is a mindset and, this, and the mindset is that the um, sins of commission are worse than sins of omission. In fact, we don't even think of sins of, uh, sins of omission. We don't think about the cost of inaction. We only think about the cost of action. And so this is really true in drug development and drug testing is, you know, heaven forbid somebody comes out with a drug and it has this, you know, horrible side effect and, you know, people die and this is part of, you know, part of the reality. And we've seen this with drug withdrawals at a somewhat frantic pace over the last number of years. Drugs we thought were safe where there's a black box warning or some sort of horrible uh, side effect that's noticed and then withdrawn from the system. I, I think that part of the what we fail to understand is that in the delay in the bureaucracy and the inertia, which we think of as benign functions, there is a cost. And the cost is uh, lives are lost. Um, you know, when, it, when drug trials... When it takes 16 years to go through certain drug trials and you have, you know, years to just accrue the patients to a trial, um, you know, there's time lost and opportunity cost in all of that. And so, so I think that how you would change that would be first to change the barriers to entry. So, mm. you know, it's very expensive to do drug trials. Um, and part of that is because what we expect a certain level of certainty out of those trials and we don't get the certainty. We don't get the certainty. You have to find out whether it's safe and effective. And after 16 years, say, of studying Avastin, with 1,000-plus trials initiated and 400 completed, we still don't know why Avastin works, which is a drug that combats, uh, it's supposed to turn off angiogenesis, a process that, that recruits blood vessels to tumors. We still don't know why it works or doesn't work in any single patient in any single disease. And so... We also don't know whether there are subsets of patients that respond better with, perhaps with certain molecular uh, uh, subtypes. We don't know if it would work better in certain stages of disease and earlier patients. We don't know anything from the process. So part of our, our challenge is to rebuild the cr clinical trials process so that we can learn from it. Mm. You know, that's, that's what I talk about a lot in the book. And, you know, it's easy to sort of give the bumper st sticker statement here. Uh, but, but, but the broader argument, I think, is, is worth having. You've also written that, that, um, that while many have uh, seen or argued that cancer death rates are declining, you, you've interestingly argued that that's deceptive. And, right. and are they not declining? I or? do sound dour. Yeah. Can I change this? Can I yeah. just no, be no, the guy no, no. I, I, I'm going to ask you some fun yeah, stuff right. in a minute. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know. Are, are, are fewer people dying more quickly or not? Well, not fewer not? people. Yeah. Fewer people yeah. are not dying. So we have more people dying. dying. The question is how you, how you judge those people. So how right. you break them down. So 
One way, so when epidemiologists talk about something called burden, which is basically how many people are getting the disease and dying of it, you know, they really look at, at, at crude rates, which is the percentage of the patients per population, so 100,000 in the population. And so it's just very simple. It's sort of like, you know, calories per serving, or it's very simple math. And so that number has gone up 14% since we started the war on cancer in 1970. Now, it's come down a little bit since 1990, so we're making some progress in recent years, but it's, it's up, right? But that's not how epidemiologists look at it. They look at something called age-adjusted death rates. Mm. And the point of that is to com- compare different regions in the same time frame. So if you wanted to look at, say, Florida and Texas, right? Well, you know, Florida has, I don't know, you know, Texas has 6 million more people and 5,000 fewer deaths or something like that each year. And the reason is it's got one of the younger populations in the country and Florida has one of the larger populations. So what they do is they, they make those look like they have the same age distribution. It's called a, you know, a standard, a standard age, uh, a standard age uh, uh, distribution. And what they do, they put everything towards the year 2000 standard and then they say, okay, well, look, Florida's rates are actually lower. And that's really useful because it, by aging is a huge factor in cancer. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you filter it that way, you're able to find things you never would have seen before. For example, African-Americans have much higher death rates from cancer than white Americans at the same age. You'd find that, you know, you might be able to find subgroups where there might be cancer clusters or, you know, find cancer populations that have lower rates overall per age. But it doesn't give you a good sense of the burden because it filters out age and we're an aging society. So, you know, I don't think it really gives us a good perspective on the... On the demographic time bomb, as I said before, that's coming our way. Um, it filters out a lot of that. You're such a nice guy. You know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like you would... I, I keep thinking you'd be really fun to hang out with at a party, but I'm just wondering, what would you talk about? Uh, oh, terrible. You know, and, and, and it's just... You know, it's, 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 you're it's, pretty intense. It's so, an opportunity So cost. before I jump in, just yeah. can you give us the three top headlines of the three structural changes so we can, we can finish yeah. up on an upward note yeah. on the how to win, how to win uh, uh, the war on cancer. Well, um, and, um, and which chapter is that? Because I had a hard time yeah, finding that. You know, <laughs> well, so here's, here's the challenges is that, um, you know, you, you can't write a book without putting the how to win it in, but I didn't really have a how to win it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was really up a creek without a paddle. Uh, so, a you know, misleading I was title. Yeah, it's a totally, it's a totally misleading title. Um, so, uh, basically, my answer to that, and I, you know, I talk about it, totally cowardly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, to write a whole book on what we're doing wrong and not offer solutions. I mean, you know, I, I own up to it. Um, but the challenge, what I, the way I look at it is, you know, when, if you're banging your head against the wall and you know the old joke, you know, it's doctor hurts when I do this. Well, the doctor says, well, stop doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really the answer is we've got to stop doing the things that are just dumb and that we all know are dumb. And that's the how to win it, you know? And so, you know, we can change the grant structure to stop doing things that are really dumb, you know? Like forcing these, you know, discrete R01 applications that have to be hypothesis-driven in this experimental system and that, and then you get your peer review, you know, study section. And listen, they all aren't going to fund anything they don't know the answer to anyway. So, but you'd spend all this time gathering preliminary data, and it's like, 
everybody's bummed out and they're spending 10 years as a postdoc purgatory and they hate it and they want to quit. It's like dumb, you know, stop doing it. So, I mean, that's really the challenge. That's how to win it. You know, stop doing that. Please uh, give a warm round of applause to Clifton Leaf, The Truth in Small Doses. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.